Welcome to the Legendary Upside Podcast. My name is Pat Corain. This episode is going to be a free preview of the narration of my week seven walkthrough, which is my game by game preview column. Subscribers to Legendary Upside Premium subscribers can get the entire article narrated. Um, you know, it's like three hours worth of content <laughs> that I provide as a perk for uh, the premium subscribers over there, which you can become for just $10 a month. You can also obviously read the entire article um, with your eyeballs over on legendaryupside.com. As you can tell, I'm a little under the weather this week. I feel fine, but uh, it is going to affect the quality of the narration a little bit. I'm a bit stuffed up, so apologies for the audio quality in that regard. But let's go ahead and get to the article, which is Week 7 Walkthrough, Jared Goff Rises in the East. Welcome to the Week 7 Walkthrough. In this article, I'll outline critical fantasy football context for this seventh glorious week of football. The stats below are from PFF, NFL FastStar, RBSDM.com, Rotoviz, Fantasy Labs, ESPN, NFL NextGen, and Fantasy Life. The first section is an intro called Splash Zone Target Rate. While in a full sprint to preview 12 to 16 games every week, it can be hard to find the time to stop and explain why I'm looking at the data I'm looking at. I dove into some thoughts on the first retarget data in the week two walkthrough, and I wanted to do the same this week on a different type of target. Last week, I started discussing downfield middle targets. These are targets that travel 10 plus air yards and are delivered to the middle of the field. But why do we care about these targets? Because they tend to lead to more fantasy points than other types of targets. In 2019, Hayden Winks dove into the importance of these targets, highlighting the importance that target location relative to the sideline has on PPR scoring. This is a quote from Hayden's article, which is linked in the piece. Quote, where a receiver is catching the ball in relation to the sideline is very important and might be the most underrated aspect of evaluating receivers right now. End quote. At that time, we fantasy obsessives were obsessed with air yards. The more air yards, the better. But Hayden noted that the idea of prayer yards, incomplete air yards that aren't worth as much as they look like on paper, applies to more than just quarterback accuracy and micro ball placement. It also matters whether targets are occurring in the middle of the field or along the sideline. Then I have a chart taken from the article that Hayden made. Hayden created this chart and it's got two lines, one for middle of the field targets and one for outside targets or targets along the sideline. And on the x-axis is the depth of target. So, you know, it starts at minus 10. So like way behind the line of scrimmage, it goes all the way to 55 yards downfield. So you can see kind of the value of targets no matter where they occur in terms of the, the horizontal space, the value of targets generally goes up the deeper downfield you go. But uh, the y-axis is the average PPR point. So what happens is right around the line of scrimmage, middle of the field targets start to separate and become more valuable than outside targets. But by the 10 yard mark, we're now at a point where middle of the field targets are worth about two PPR points per target compared to an outside target at the same depth is only worth about 1.5. And then uh, the gap sort of stays similar until about 28 yards downfield or so. And then there's like a, a big jump for where middle of the field targets from about like 25, 20 to 28 yards all the way to like 40 yards become quite a bit more valuable than um, sideline targets. So those super deep middle of the field targets are like even more valuable, but 
15, 20 yards, 25 yards, you definitely would prefer to have the middle of the field target compared to a sideline target per this data. Hayden notes that Curtis Samuel, who has ironically shifted to more of a middle of the field role, was the king of misleading target volume in 2019. Quote, Samuel's air yard totals were phony for reasons beyond Kyle Allen's inability to throw deep passes. 92% of Samuel's targets and 88% of his air yards came on less valuable outside targets. That, simply put, is not good for fantasy, end quote. I spent some time writing about this type of target last season. With the Dolphins building their offense around attacking the middle of the field, it was hard not to. But I've struggled to communicate effectively on the subject. Downfield middle targets per route is a bit spreadsheet-brained even for me. So in the interest of discussing the data more simply, I'll be referring to these as splash zone targets. After all, the point of looking at these targets is to find players who are being set up for deep catches and elite yak gains, hopefully for house calls. You know, splash plays. And at roughly 10 yards deep, over-the-middle targets average 2 PPR points. Sideline targets don't hit that mark until roughly 28 yards downfield. We definitely would like to know who will see a high rate of splash zone targets moving forward. But that can be hard to determine because the sample sizes on splash zone targets tend to be pretty small. Tyreek Hill and Adam Thielen, gulp, lead the NFL in splash zone targets. But they've totaled just 14 in six games. That's why I waited until we had five weeks of data before adding them to this analysis. But even now, this is a tool for helping us marginally improve our understanding of how valuable a receiver's role is. It's not the type of thing to put a ton of stock in on its own. In the previews below, I'll generally be referring to splash zone targets per route or splash zone target rate. But if you're curious, here are the top 36 pass catchers in splash zone targets per game, minimum 100 routes. Then I've got a list here. It's 36 receivers, so I don't know if you want to hear all of them, but the top, uh, let's do the top 12. So it's, and it's, it's wide receivers and tight ends. Brandon Ayuk, Tyreek Hill, Adam Thielen, Jacoby Myers, Puka Nakua, Devontae Adams, Justin Jefferson, Nico Collins, George Pickens, Kyle Pitts, Stefan Diggs, and Tutu Atwell. Amon Ross St. Brown is 13th, just for a bonus. The first game is the Lions at Ravens, which kicks off the 1 p.m. slate. Lions implied team total, 19.5. Jared Goff has been outstanding this season, ranking quarterback 6 in EPA per game and quarterback 8 in success rate. He hasn't been elite, but still profiles as one of the top quarterbacks in the league. Then I've got the EPA per game chart, and Jared Goff just below Patrick Mahomes, although Mahomes has been kind of a funny reference point because he started out slow and it keeps moving higher and higher up this chart. But still, through six weeks of the season, Goff has been about as consistent as, as Mahomes, less efficient. He's been sort of a more consistent version of Justin Herbert if you look at a, a guy who has similar EPA per game. The Lions also showed a lot of faith in Goff last week. Heading into their matchup with the Buccaneers, they looked like a strong bet to control the game by pounding the rock. But with David Montgomery exiting with a rib cartilage injury, they still controlled the matchup, but with the passing game. Then I've got the expected pass rate and pass rate chart just from week six. And the Lions played last week like the Chiefs play. The Chiefs uh, right next to them in terms of their pass rate and expected pass rate as a team that was dictating the pass. The Eagles, the Chiefs, the Bengals, and the Lions were the four teams last week who kind of controlled the game through their passing game, although I guess the Eagles didn't really truly control the game given that they lost the Jets, but they did pass a lot in a game script where they didn't necessarily need to. 
With David Montgomery expected to miss Week 7, the Lions will need to lean on Goff once again. But Goff will be facing a much more difficult Ravens defense that ranks 4th in EPA allowed per dropback and 3rd in dropback success rate. Then I've got the matchup chart. The Lions look really strong on offense across the board. The Ravens look really strong on defense across the board. Good run defense, good pass defense. The Ravens, I would say, look like they're a stronger secondary than a pass rush. Their pass rush is kind of slightly above average. Their coverage looks potentially elite. But Goff actually looks like a good fit for this difficult matchup. The Ravens blitz frequently, but Goff is used to facing the blitz and has held up decently well against it. Goff has also been highly consistent and should be able to handle the Ravens' excellent secondary fairly well. Goff is more of a liability when under pressure, but the Lions' offensive line looks capable of holding up against an above-average Ravens pass rush. Even with the game plan on his shoulders, Goff should be solid in this matchup. And although the Ravens are allowing explosive plays at the league's lowest rate, they'll need to be on guard against an offense that is ramping up Jamison Williams. Williams only ran a route on 19% of dropbacks against the Buccaneers, down from 50% against the Panthers. He's a very risky fantasy play, because he won't be on the field a ton. But when he's running routes, he creates serious big play risk for the Ravens' defense. His fantasy impact will be tough to count on, but he should have a real-life impact on this matchup. Williams saw three targets against the Buccaneers with an average depth of 23.3 yards. All three were first-read looks, meaning the Lions were dialing up deep shots for him despite limited snaps. Williams' role should help open things up underneath for Amon Ross St. Brown and Sam Laporta. Both St. Brown, 14, and Laporta, 11, feasted on targets against the Buccaneers, and we could see a similar dynamic this week. Even on limited passing volume, St. Brown looks like a wide receiver one. He's seeing an elite 22% first read target rate and a 27% targets per route run. He's going to get his targets. And despite a shallow 7.7 ADOT, St. Brown is seeing a lot of valuable over-the-middle opportunities. The third-year star ranks 85th percentile in splash zone targets per route. Then I've got Amon Ross St. Brown's stats here. Just a really strong profile. Hasn't been like absolutely dominant as a fantasy asset this year, but 92nd percentile in first read target rate, 92nd percentile in target per route run, um, very shallow dot, but he's still getting targeted on those deeper over-the-middle shots um, that, are gen- that generate so much PPR upside. He's in the 84th percentile in splash zone rate. So just a really strong profile here for Amon Ross St. Brown and a guy who fits this matchup pretty well. Sam Laporta's opportunity looks less locked in. He's earning an elite 25% targets per route run, but with a good not great 15% first read target rate. If Goff has time to work through his progressions, Laporta should see plenty of targets again this week. But if the Ravens disrupt things with their solid pass rush and willingness to blitz, Laporta's target rate could overstate his involvement in this outing. However, given the state of tight end, it's hard to imagine you have a better option than the star rookie. Then I've got his profile just excellent in terms of targets per outrun. At 25%, that's 98th percentile. Yards per outrun of 1.93 is in the 94th percentile for all tight ends and a really, really strong mark for a rookie tight end. It's just that, you know, the play calling hasn't necessarily fully backed up his targets. Now, he's earning targets. You know, if if they're not calling plays to get him the ball and he's still getting targeted at a high rate, that means he's earning targets. So Laporta definitely flashing as a very good player 
but you know we could see kind of the the target rate regress a little bit to the to the first read. They could they probably meet in the middle, but that would mean his targets per out run dropping a bit. In the backfield, things look very murky with both Jameer Gibbs hamstring and Craig Reynolds hamstring and toe limited in practice. One thing I feel confident saying is that even if Gibbs goes, he's likely to play alongside an early down complement. The rookie has been an impressive receiver but isn't flashing as a rusher, and the Lions don't appear to view him as an early down weapon at this stage. Still, if he suits up, Gibbs profiles as a solid RB2. The Lions building their attack around the pass would actually be great news for the receiving weapon. Then I've got Gibbs stats, and just much stronger as a receiver than a rusher, 1.15 yards per route run. Uh, that's, that's only RB16, but that's a solid mark. RB4 in targets per route run with an elite 28%. 14% target share is is RB9, pretty strong mark there. He hasn't been bad as a rusher. Uh, I don't want you to get that idea, but just not good. The best mark is uh, breakaway yards per game. He's RB22. Worst mark is rush yards over expected per attempt. He's RB29. So he's kind of in that RB22 to RB29 range in these various efficiency metrics. It's just that the Lions probably need some convincing to lean on him, and he hasn't done that convincing just yet. Moving to the Ravens, who have an implied team total of 22.5. The Ravens might be more willing to pass this season, but they certainly haven't been a pass-first team so far. With a minus 2% pass rate over expected, they qualify as a run-first offense. The Ravens have found themselves in a fair amount of neutral and positive game script, however. They've kept things pretty conservative, but they aren't fighting a game script to do so. Their expected pass rate is just 59%, which ranks 26th, and they've topped 60% just once. The next chart is the Ravens' expected pass rate by week and their pass rate by week. And yeah, you can see that they aren't in a ton of scripts that you know are, are asking them to pass a bunch. Peaking at 64%, which is kind of a middling expected pass rate. Um, it's you know a little on the higher side, but but not like a super high. And then 56% in week one, 57% week two, 60% week three, 59% week four, then 64% against the Steelers, then back down to 58% against the Titans. By comparison, the Falcons' expected pass rate is 68%, which ranks fourth, and they've topped 60% in every game this season. Then I've got the Falcons, just for comparison, expected pass rates of 62%, 63%, 77%, 69%, 62%, and 73%. So the Falcons have been in some serious gotta-pass situations. The Ravens really haven't been in any of those game scripts yet. Because the Falcons are consistently fighting these scripts, we can feel confident that they will seek to limit passing volume whenever possible. But for now, all we can confidently say about the Ravens is that they will dictate the run when playing in competitive games. Then I've got the expected pass rate chart, and the Ravens are right next to the Cowboys and the Browns, a little bit behind the Lions, but those are similar teams in kind of their approach when playing in neutral and positive game script. They're going to run the ball when they are in position to control a game. But Baltimore's defense is up against an impressive Lions offense that has a realistic shot of putting up points against them. And Baltimore's offense is up against the Lions' defense that has been impressive against the run and is profiling as a pass funnel. Teams are averaging a 5% pass rate of expected against the Lions and are shifting 4% to the pass. In combination with a Lions offense that could be more pass-heavy without David Montgomery, we could see the Ravens take to the air. 
Then I've got the matchup chart. And yeah, the, the Lions defense is not terrible against the pass, but they look stronger against the run than the pass. Teams shifting to attack that passing defense a little bit. Um, also, you know, the Lions are generally playing from ahead, so teams may be kind of shifting because of game script to an extent. But, you know, if the Lions are putting up points against the Ravens, which most teams have trouble doing, then we could see the Ravens be a bit more pass-heavy. The Ravens should also be willing to test a Lions pass rush that ranks just 27th in pass rush win rate and 28th in quick pressure rate. Lamar Jackson has been consistent this season, ranking quarterback 4 in success rate. What he needs are more big plays. He ranks just quarterback 17 in EPA per game. This matchup could help him get there. The Lions rank just 21st in preventing 15-plus yard pass plays. Then I have the EPA per game chart for Lamar Jackson. He, Geno Smith, and Jimmy Garoppolo to a lesser extent, but but he and Geno Smith are probably the two best candidates for positive regression in terms of their efficiency because they've been playing very consistently but have not been impressive in terms of their expected points added per game. Unfortunately, the Ravens wide receiver core has devolved into a rotation. Nelson Aguilar saw 62% route participation against the Titans with Rashad Bateman at 51% and Odell Beckham at 43%. And this is in line with the season-long rates. Then I've got the uh, season stats for the Ravens wide receivers. Zay Flowers at 95% route participation this year, Aguilar at 58%, Bateman at 47%, and Beckham at 46%. This leaves Zay Flowers as the Ravens' only fantasy-viable wide receiver. But Flowers looks pretty interesting in a matchup that could push passing volume up a notch. He's earning a strong 23% targets per route run with a high-end 28% target share. His first read target rate doesn't pop, but that's partly because of his usage in the screen game. Flowers has seen 28% of his targets on screens, which PFF doesn't typically chart as first read targets. But in conjunction with a healthy mix of traditional targets, Flowers' screen usage looks like a boost to his PPR profile. He looks like a wide receiver too here. Then I've got, say, Flowers' chart and his targets per route run of 23% is very strong. Yards per route run of 1.79 is pretty good. Uh, 8.5 dot, so he's a bit more of an underneath guy. Some of that's the screen targets, um, but some of it's just kind of the way he's being used. 28% target share is actually really good, not just for a rookie, just for any wide receiver. So a strong profile for Flowers. Mark Andrews also looks very interesting this week. Andrews has a fairly similar profile to Zay Flowers, although the tight end actually has the deeper ADOT. If the Ravens are attacking downfield more aggressively this week, Andrews should be a big part of that game plan. The tight end has been somewhat disappointing this year, but remains an elite option. Then I have Mark Andrews' profile. It's kind of crazy because he has been like disappointing, but nothing in this profile looks bad. I mean, across the board, he looks really strong for a tight end. Target share in the 98th percentile. He leads all tight ends in route participation. He's got a 94th percentile air yard share, 96th percentile whopper. Targets per route run of 26% is very strong. Uh, so everything you're looking for, it's just that we kind of have high standards for Mark Andrews, given what we spent on him in drafts. Even if the Ravens are able to execute their typical run-first game plan, the backfield doesn't look very interesting. Gus Edwards is coming off a 61% snap share against the Titans and should handle the bulk of the work if the Ravens are in a competitive script. Then I've got his game log uh, showing that he's had, over the last three weeks, carry shares of 50%, 55%, and 48%. But Edwards hasn't been very efficient this season. 
and is going against a difficult Lions defense. He's a touchdown or bust bet. Then I've got Gus Edwards' stats. Very poor as a receiver. I mean, 0.19 yards per route run is just horrendously bad. Success rate, though, of 42%. That's okay, so they can kind of lean on him. Um, Kind of helps explain why he's sort of operating as the number one, but not really showing any explosiveness. RB26 in rush yards over expected per game, and he's performing below expectations there. But even if this game becomes up-tempo, Justice Hill isn't likely to turn in a big game. He's more involved as a receiver, but averages a horrendous 0.44 yards per route run. It's a stretch to call him a receiving back. He's a dart throw fill-in. Then I've got Justice Hill's stats. And yeah, compared to Gus Edwards, he looks a little bit better as a receiver, but much less consistent as a rusher. He's breaking more tackles, but he hasn't been very explosive. He's actually been less explosive than Gus Edwards when you look at things like rush yards over expected, breakaway yards per game. Gus Edwards actually adding more there as a rusher. The next game is the Bills at Patriots. Bills implied team total, 24.25. The Bills are coming off an uninspiring 14-9 win over the Giants, and Josh Allen was disappointingly mediocre against a weak Giants defense. Then I've got Josh Allen's percentiles by week, and he was a little bit disappointing in week three as well, um, but he fell off to the 54th percentile in EPA per play. last week and the 60th percentile success rate, and this was against a Giants defense that's not very good. But when looking at the season as a whole, Allen still looks like a strong bet, the strongest bet on the board, in my opinion, for MVP. Then I've got the EPA per game chart, Josh Allen, Brock Purdy, and Tua are kind of in their own tier as the top quarterbacks statistically right now. Mahomes is working his way up towards those guys, but as it stands today, there's a pretty big gap between those three and Mahomes. With a firmly pass-first, 3% pass rate of expected, the Bills have built their offense around Allen. And the Bills have been pass-first from a position of strength. They have the same expected pass rate as the Browns, but are calling plays very differently. Then I've got the expected pass rate chart. Um, This shows the Bills kind of between sort of dictating the pass and dictating the run. So they're not necessarily like the Chiefs. Um, or even kind of like what the Bengals look like they're becoming, where they're like truly dictating pass-heavy game scripts even when they're ahead, but they are not establishing it from ahead like the Browns, the Cowboys, the Ravens, the Lions, the Eagles, the Dolphins. Uh, They are willing to pass from a position of strength. The Bills can be expected to control this game, and the Patriots' defense doesn't give them any reason to shift from their typical play-calling approach. The Patriots have been solid across the board against the run. Then I've got the rushing matchup. Two good units here. The Bills are good at running the ball. The Patriots are good at stopping the run. Uh, but this is not a matchup where the Bills would shift and attack kind of a weakness um, on the ground uh, when looking at the New England defense. The Bills have an efficient run game, but unfortunately for fantasy managers, carries have been split. James Cook is coming off his second highest carry share of the season at just 52%. And Cook doesn't lead the backfield in inside the five attempts. Latavius Murray does. Then I've got Cook's game log. He peaked at 67% of rushing attempts in week one, but he hasn't been above 52% since then. That 52% mark was last week. Um, Yeah, it was the second highest of the season, but well below that 67%. He's peaked at 63% of snaps, kind of a 1A type. 
Cook is the lead back in a committee rather than a true starter, but at least he's flashing high-end talent. Cook ranks RB8 in rush yards over expected per game and RB3 in success rate. He's also playing well as a receiver, ranking RB13 in yards per route run. The Bills may not fully trust him yet, but their trust will build if he keeps playing like this. Then I've got his stats. A 50% success rate is awesome, and it's especially nice to see for a guy like Cook, who's a bit of a smaller back that's not necessarily going to be his bread and butters, like consistently hitting the hole isn't what you would necessarily expect. He's kind of more of like a receiving back, more of an explosion back. I do think that if he keeps running like that, it will earn him more trust. Um, and we have seen backs like Austin Eckler, you know, be able to be leaned on. So, you know, the fact that he's smaller doesn't necessarily preclude him from taking over the backfield at some point. He's been really explosive. He's running back eight in rush yards over expected per game. He has a 1.21 yards per route run. So he's delivering on the idea that he can be a weapon in the receiving game. But in this matchup, the running game sets up as a secondary mode of attack. Josh Allen will lead the charge. The Bills elite quarterback is going up against a Patriots defense that isn't getting to the passer and is also vulnerable on the back end, ranking 23rd in PFF's coverage grades. Then I've got the matchup here, and this looks like a mismatch on paper for sure. The one thing you could say about the Bills is they are letting up quick pressure. They're 25th in quick pressure allowed. Um, and the Patriots, though, they're not getting quick pressure. They don't really have a pass rush. So, you know, that's how you kind of rattle the Bills passing offense. You, you you take advantage of this weakness and the Patriots are not well suited to do that. Assuming Dalton Kincaid returns from his concussion, he should slot back in as the Bills' third wide receiver. Oh, are we still pretending Kincaid isn't just a mislabeled wide receiver? Why? That's exactly how defenses are treating him. Then I've got a tweet from Josh Norris that says, despite using 12 personnel at the second highest rate in weeks one through five, when Dalton Kincaid played, the Bills only faced base defensive personnel on 17.3% of offensive snaps, 23rd in the NFL. The goal of 11.5 personnel, uh, which refers to using 12 personnel with Kincaid as kind of a hybrid wide receiver tight end, is to force defenses into base and exploit matchups. Teams just treated it like nickel, 65%, or dime, 17%. And if we are to view Kincaid as the Bills' number three wide receiver, it's not a very flattering picture. Then I've got comparison between Stefan Diggs, Gabe Davis, and Dalton Kincaid. And this uses Kincaid. I actually went in and changed his designation to a receiver. So the percentiles are all showing based on if he was a receiver. And as a receiver, he looks pretty bad. Um, he doesn't look great as a tight end, but you know receivers are generally getting more volume, getting higher target shares, getting higher targets per route run and all that. So, you know, if you want to be a receiver, <laughs> but you don't want to be judged like a receiver, you know, we, we obviously can play him at tight end in the in the um, fantasy landscape, but he doesn't appear to be adding a ton to the offense as a receiver. When you look at him compared to Gabe Davis and Stefan Diggs, Diggs jumps out as like a clear elite. Davis jumps out as like a competent-ish secondary guy. Kincaid looks like a clear third guy well behind those two. After week one, I quickly admitted that Kincaid's path to playing time was a lot simpler than I anticipated. I didn't expect the Bills to literally treat him as a wide receiver, but I also noted that Kincaid still needed to prove he was actually an NFL playmaker. Unfortunately, we're still waiting on that. Kincaid's 14% targets per route run and 0.89 yards per route run are poor for any position, but they are especially weak for a wide receiver. 
Of course, we have the luxury of putting Kincaid into fantasy lineups as a tight end. But for real-life purposes, if you aren't helping shift defensive coverages and aren't contributing receiving production, what would you say you do here? Of course, even when compared to wide receivers, Kincaid looks more efficient than Dawson Knox. Then I've got Knox's profile here not looking too good for Knox. He doesn't really have anything in his profile that pops. Um, he's just tied to Josh Allen. That's basically the play. So the real question isn't, why are the Bills playing Dalton Kincaid? It's, why are they insisting on playing Kincaid and Knox together? Again, defenses aren't respecting these looks as true two tight end sets. So the Bills may as well try to get Knox off the field for as many receiving snaps as possible, which would allow them to play a de facto four wide receiver set with Kincaid. But as is, only Stefan Diggs jumps out as a high-end option. We breezed right by Diggs' profile, but he's been absolutely elite this season. And it can't hurt to compete for targets with three players who have a 16% targets per outrun or lower. Although Gabe Davis is struggling to earn targets, as usual, his 15.5 ADOT gives him big play upside every week. He's a solid flex play as a bet on the Bills' offense. Moving to the Patriots, who have an implied team total of 15.75. Mac Jones played poorly against the Raiders. He also played significantly better than he had over the previous three weeks. That's the kind of season Jones is having. Then I've got his percentiles by week. He was at the very bottom in week four and week five, like just scraping the bottom of this chart. He rebounded last week, but he was still 40th percentile in success rate, 33rd percentile in EPA per play, so still very poor. Jones ranks quarterback 30 in EPA per game, ahead of only Bryce Young, Zach Wilson, and Daniel Jones. His consistency hasn't been quite as bad, but he still ranks just quarterback 26 in success rate. Then I have Mac Jones' EPA per game, and, you know, he's kind of in like a, a tier two um, of, of badness as quarterbacks. There's Kenny Pickett and Zach Wilson are at the very bottom left of the chart, and then there's Mac Jones and Bryce Young and Daniel Jones, who are kind of with a large pack of quarterbacks and success rate, but those are the three most inefficient of that pack. So they're definitely uh, looking better success rate-wise than Pickett and Wilson, but they're about as inefficient as those two uh, in EPA per game. Jones now faces a Bills defense that is allowing explosive passing plays, but has otherwise been very sound. Then I've got the Patriots passing offense versus the Bills passing defense. <laughs> I mean, the Bills, you know, they don't look quite as strong as they uh, used to, but uh, the Patriots are just a sea of red. Like, there's nothing positive about the Patriots passing offense, and the Bills passing defense is, is looking good. Even after suffering several major injuries over the last few weeks, the Bears weren't bad against the pass in Week 6. Then I've got a chart from rbsdm.com. Shows the Bills were um, about even in terms of dropback EPA per play allowed. So um, they were right around zero is what I mean by even. Um, and generally, that's okay. There were many teams that were worse than them in week six. They were actually pretty good against the run last week. With the Bills likely to play from ahead this week, we should at least get some passing volume from the Patriots. With a minus 4% pass rate of expected, the Patriots are definitely trying to limit passing attempts but they aren't completely fighting game script either. Their 64% pass rate is the 13th highest in the league. The next chart is the expected pass rate and pass rate chart. And the Patriots aren't like leaning into their pass heavy scripts. Uh, they are trying to limit the passing volume to an extent, but they also aren't going full Falcons and just running the ball no matter what 
the game script uh, is. Normally, even passing volume doesn't do much for the Patriots. Their receiver landscape is that bleak. But in the charred landscape of the New England offense, Kendrick Bourne is the lone green shoot. Then I have the Whopper chart here. And like normally, I use this chart to highlight a guy like Cooper Cup, who's at the very top and has been super efficient, or a guy like Tyreek Hill is off the charts in yards per route run. This shows yards per route run on the x-axis and Whopper on the y-axis. What's interesting about the Patriots is that all of their guys are kind of just in the muck with everybody. Like No one really stands out. Kendrick Bourne is near Terry McLaurin, Devontae Smith, Chris Godwin, Jalen Waddell. Um, so he's kind of near like strong number two options rather than number one options, but he on the Patriots looks like the clear best option. Demario Douglas is near like Rasheed Rice. You know, he's near some Khalif Raymond. He's near some of these like part-time kind of interesting guys. Devontae Parker, Hunter Henry, Juju Smith-Schuster, Mike Isicki are in a pack um, near like Calvin Austin, Jahan Dotson, um, Curtis Samuels ahead of them. So none of those guys look interesting. And then Ramondre Stevenson and Ezekiel Elliott are down with a bunch of running backs. So Bourne is like the only guy, it's not that he looks like that interesting, but, you know, to have a wide receiver two profile, um, like a like a real world wide receiver two profile on this offense is actually a wide receiver one profile. And the Patriots are finally showing the good sense to play Bourne in a full-time role. Then I've got Bourne's game log here. He was at 91% route participation in week five. That was the first time since week one that he was at 90% plus. Then he was at 92% last week. So hopefully they've kind of realized this guy is their best playmaker. He has logged 90% route participation in back-to-back weeks and profiles as an intriguing DFS play slash dart throw flex. Then I've got Kendrick Bourne's stats. And he's got pretty solid targets per route run of 24%. He's got a 1.65 yards per route run, which isn't great, but isn't bad. And, you know, not bad is, is pretty great in this Patriots offense. He also has his splash zone target rate is in the 87th percentile. So it's not just that he's getting targeted at a high rate. He actually is getting valuable over the middle of the field targets. Um, so his role is, is pretty valuable as long as we can count on him to be out there. If Hunter Henry misses this game, Mike Gesicki also looks like a viable DFS play. Gesicki's 9.3 ADOT is leading to a surprisingly valuable per route role that bears a striking resemblance to Hunter Henry's. Then I've got a comparison between Gesicki and Henry. And they really do have very similar roles. They both have a 16% targets per route run. Uh, they both have 1.3-ish expected yards per route run. Gesicki's at 1.31. Hunter Henry's at 1.33. Gesicki's actually been slightly more efficient in yards per route run. He's seeing a slightly higher first read target rate. So it really just comes down to routes. Like Hunter Henry will be out there running more routes if he's healthy. But if he were to miss, then Gesicki would probably fill in pretty well for him. All right, that'll do it for this free preview of the week seven walkthrough. If you want to check out the whole thing, head over to legendaryupside.com and sign up. It's only 10 bucks a month, um, $99 for the year. If you want to do that, you can get a 20, again, a $50 underdog credit if you go that route. And I do dynasty content in the off season, uh, rookie profiles, uh, best ball rankings. Um, so there's lots of content year round. This isn't just an in-season product. Uh, hope to see you over there at legendaryupside.com.